Hey, if you don't know me, I think I've had a chance to meet a lot of you, but if we have not met before, my name is Taylor Bronis. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary. Um, I just love getting to be here at Collective. I definitely don't get to be here as often as I want to. Um, I just want to say this really before we dive in. Um, I just want to commend you, Collective YA. Um, I just think it is absolutely so incredible how, how so many different events, especially at our church, I see you guys serving. You're serving in kids. I know a lot of you served at uh, Freedom Celebration last night. So I just see you guys serving all over. I just want to just commend you and thank you on behalf of the pastoral team at this church. Thank you for, for leading the way. I think you are setting an incredible tone for the rest of our church. I think that the rest of our church needs to match your guys' faithfulness. So I just want to say simply thank you for that. Um, but we are going to be continuing in our series through Galatians. Obviously, Nick is not here, but he's asked me to continue through this series nonetheless. So if you have your Bible, I hope you do. We'll be in Galatians chapter 3. As Sky was reading earlier, I'll catch up with you there in a moment. And I'm super grateful that uh, Nick invited me out here to speak. Um, and then I was doing some, I was kind of looking at the text, and he was like, okay, you're going to be like Galatians 10 through 14. I was like, okay, cool, that sounds great. Um, and then I was looking at it, and I was like, Nick, this is like one of the most difficult texts in the entire Bible. And then you leave town, and you ask me to do that one. Um, so I was like, oh, thanks, buddy. Just one of the most difficult, difficult texts to teach on. And then you leave, and then make me do it. Um, I was reading one of the commentaries, uh, N.T. Wright, who, if you don't know, is the goat uh, in terms of uh, theologians. And uh, he even said in his commentary, this is like one of the most difficult texts in the entire Bible. It's like, oh, great. So I just want to say this. If, uh, if I do a bad job, blame Nick, not me. Um, obviously, I am kidding, but to be, to be serious for a moment, um, this is going to be a pretty in-depth sermon. We really, this is a very difficult, challenging passage to work with, so I'm just kind of asking all of you, just kind of bear with us. I promise we're going to go through a lot of details, a lot of context in terms of Old Testament law. It's going to make sense in the end, I pray, I hope. I'm going to land this plane, I would say. i dock this submarine, but that would be in bad taste. So... Um, <laughs> I'm terrible. It's the end of the week for me. You're getting spicy, Taylor, here. But So I was born in 1993, and one of the things that I was raised with um, was VHS tapes from Disney. Does anybody remember that? My childhood, if you could just encapsulate it, it looks like one of those white clamshell case VHS tapes. Does anybody remember those? That's what I was raised on. And of course, the best ones were from what has now become known as the Disney Renaissance, right? So 1989 through 1990, you got Little Mermaid. You got Beauty and the Beast. You got Lion King. You got Hercules. You got, let's see, Mulan. You have Tarzan. All these incredible movies. Note, I'm not mentioning Pocahontas because I tend to believe that that is, if you just wanted, like, what? How could I pack the most insensitivity, stereotypes, and just ignorance into one movie, and it's Pocahontas? Um, or, more simply, if you just want to say Avatar without blue people. But either way, I don't like that movie. Uh, <laughs> I don't like that movie. The other ones I do like, and while not being remake-worthy, I don't understand why, other than perhaps they cast a Greek demigod as a red-haired white man. Um, in the movie, but Hercules. I love Hercules. I absolutely love that movie. The, the soundtrack slaps. I was listening to it on the way just to make sure I wasn't remembering. It is so good. You have these muse characters who are singing like a gospel choir, just like so good. It's such a good movie. And if you know that movie at all, kind of the key 
turning point of the movie is when Hercules sings this song called Go the Distance. Okay, Go the Distance. This is what he said. He says, I am on my way. I can go the distance. I don't care how far. Somehow I'll be strong. I know every mile will be worth my while. I could go most anywhere to find where I belong. Let's sing it together now. Okay, one, two, no. I actually find that this song encapsulates how we as Americans tend to think about just about everything. That if I go far enough, if I work hard enough, if I'm strong enough, I can do anything. We take that mindset into pretty much every element of life, whether that's our school, our work, our career, our family, you name it. If I go far enough, if I'm strong enough, I'm going to make it, I'm going to get what I need. And despite the market research, patented, trademark, Disney affirmation, we listen to that song, and that sounds great. It sounds inspiring, but when you really pull that apart, I will, I will find my way if I can be strong. So meaning, if I'm not strong enough, I'm not finding my way. That's not good news. I'm sorry. It was beautifully sung by Michael Bolton at the end of the movie. It's not good news that I can only find my way if I'm strong enough, if I work hard enough. Because again, as followers of Jesus, we have to beg the question, like, what if I'm not strong enough? What if I can't do it? What if I don't find belonging? In fact, I would actually argue that that mindset of having to be strong, having to do certain things in order to attain whatever goal you have, it's actually opposite of how we should really be living our, in our Christian life. And that's why I'm calling my talk tonight, you can't go the distance. You can't go the distance. In Matthew 7, 13 through 14, Jesus says this. He says this, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and few find it. And here's the thing with that verse. Most people, when we read it, especially in a Christian context, we tend to think of, okay, broad, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Ah, that must be talking about the world and sinfulness and all these things, secularism, atheism, right? No, that's not what Jesus is talking about. In context to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about legalism. Jesus is talking about self-righteousness, where I'm going to try to do the right things and earn God's favor. That is the broad way that leads to destruction. And I think this, if you're a follower of Jesus in here, we, we know fundamentally, right, that Okay, we're not saved by our own works. We know that I, I can't earn salvation. Jesus, get, he earned it for me. I believe that. We, we know that. We agree with it. But what I have seen play out in my life and certainly what I've seen play out in the lives of others is that we don't actually believe that. That we, we still somehow deep down, we still believe that I need, to, I need to do something. Like God's just, he's so good. He loves me. I just, I need to earn my favor with him. I need to prove myself to him. That is how we seem to just live underneath the surface. We never admit that. We know that's wrong, but I know certainly in my life, especially growing up in a church context, I battle that and continue to battle that. That I somehow need to earn God's favor, that if I do this, I don't have it. And if that's the belief that maybe you're wrestling with, I think our text tonight offers three correctives to that. So if you're wrestling with that self-righteousness, that desire to prove yourself to God, I think that this text is going to be helpful. So Let's jump into verse 10. Sky read it a moment ago, but we'll read it again here. Verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And this is the first corrective. The grind will kill you. 
The grind will kill you. And as I'm saying that, I just envision Gary Vee and David Goggins just running to come kill me in my sleep, right? David Goggins would just be like, the grind should kill you. You should go run 40 miles. You should take off your shirt and run barefoot across the desert. I don't know why, but that's just, have you ever, have you ever listened to videos by that dude? He is just like an inspiring human being, but also why would I want to run through the desert barefoot with no shirt on? That sounds horrible, <laughs> no matter how much that might develop my character. But anyhow, that's why I'm anti-grind. But nonetheless, in this verse, the Galatian Christians that Paul was writing this letter to could very much identify with Hercules when he's saying this, when I go the distance, I'll be right where I belong. It's about belonging. And as Nick has been talking to you these last several weeks, that fundamentally the book of Galatians is all about how do I become part of the family of God? The Galatian church was consumed with questions of what is the family of God? Who is it made of? How can I join this family? What do I need to do to stay in the family of God? That's why Paul writes this epistle. And we can read verses that explain how we've entered into the family of God. We can read Galatians 2.20 where Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We read that. It's like, that's beautiful. I love that verse. We agree with that verse. We believe that verse. And yet we still live our lives in such a manner that says, I know that Jesus did that, but I still need to do something else. I still need to maintain this standard of behavior or all the things that, all the love that Jesus gave me, that's not going to be enough. And I worry that our national upbringing, the country we live in, for all of its wonderful things, all of its freedom, that there's still this narrative that we all kind of know that basically, hey, you just need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You just need to do this, work hard, and you'll figure it out. I think that sometimes our Christianity is more shaped by our culture than it is by the biblical narrative. Mr. Beast says this, the scholar. I read an article this week. This is what he says. I don't have a life. I don't have a work-life balance. My personality, my soul, my being is making the best videos possible, entertaining my fans as best as I can. That is why I exist on this planet. Then he goes on to say, I'm, a, I'm miserable a lot of times. I have a mental breakdown every other week because I push myself too hard. And despite all of the massive ad revenue from YouTube and all of his different businesses that he's bringing in, and again, to his credit, he gives a lot of that money back out. I'm sorry, I read that. My heart broke. That sounds like a living hell. I don't care what dollar sign you promise me. If, it if the grind to achieve that dollar requires that I have a mental breakdown every other week, that sounds like a living hell. That sounds like a living hell. Or to use terms like from our text, that sounds like a curse. But just be honest, when we go through our lives, our school lives, our work lives, do we keep that pace up? Do we treat it the same way that we're just like, I just got to do it if I just work hard and completely disregard my own health just to attain this because I'm going to get this piece of paper or this paycheck or this position, this office, it's all going to be worth it. So often that's how we live. And I believe, again, that that's because we've been deeply shaped at a, at a base level by that notion of the American dream. If you work hard, you do your time, you put in your time at your nine-to-five job, even if you hate it, even if it destroys your soul, it'll all be worth it because you got the house, you got the spouse, you got the kids, you got the white picket fence, everything's good. Then you can retire at 65, which in this economy we all know that that's, ha, that's not going to happen. But we still fundamentally believe that. But right before we get to that point where we can quote-unquote retire, we have to, we have to hustle. We got to grind. 
every day, endlessly. You just gotta keep going, keep pushing, keep pushing. And we're hoping that through it all, maybe it's gonna pay off, right? Again, I don't think any of us would, would actively say, yeah, that's definitely what I believe. I'd I li- like to live my life by that way. But despite, underneath all of the, the TikTok influencers, the TikTok motivational shorts and uh, inspirational Instagram posts, I think we're all still facing this existential a- angst. They're like, what if, I, what if I get to the end of the journey and every mile was not worth my while? What if, what if I don't get what I've been grinding for? What if actually what I've been spending my life grinding and hustling for doesn't happen? And then I wasted my life. That's that existential angst that we're dealing with. And to me, that's a modern extrapolation of the curse that Paul is speaking of here in verse 10. And Paul is quoting or roughly paraphrasing. I love that. Paul, as an author of scripture, is just paraphrasing the Bible. But he says this, Deuteronomy 27, 26, it says, Cursed is anyone who does not uphold the words of the law by carrying them out. For context, briefly. These words were pronounced by Moses on God's behalf. Basically, at the end of his life, as the the generation is about to go into the promised land and conquer it, Moses re-delivers the law to them and pronounces blessings and cursings. And these are blessings and cursings that the people of Israel basically agree to and pronounce upon themselves. If they obey the law, they're going to find blessing. If they don't obey the law, they're going to find cursing. This is the curse that happens, and, and if you have a, even a passing familiarity with the story of Israel in the Old Testament, you're going to know they did not achieve the blessing. They did not obey the law. They broke the covenant, and after years, centuries even, of failing to obey the law, God allows a foreign nation to take them into exile. They experience the fruit of this curse that their ancestors pronounced upon themselves. In the Jews of Jesus and Paul's day, they understood that, hey, even though we've been back in our homeland for 500 years, we're spiritually still in exile. They knew we're still under this curse. They're looking for a way out. And as a quick sidebar, I think it's worth mentioning, especially as we get into the rest of this letter, when law is going to come up a lot. I think Christians tend to misunderstand the law. There's this kind of concept that we have where just like, the law is bad. Grace is good, the law and the gospel. You hear that, that differentiation a lot. When there's this just concept, whether it's it just like the law is a bad thing. It's actually not. The law is actually a very good thing. The law is good. In fact, it's God's gift to Israel. It was defining the parameters of his very personal and intimate relationship with them. And it's also forming them into the community that would one day be ready to bring forth the Messiah from. The law is a good thing. And I think that some Christians today are functional antinomians. By that I mean that the law as it's contained in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we just tend to think it's just all bad. It's all bad. It's all legalism. We're we're under the gospel now. We don't need that. That's Jesus would beg to differ with you. Matthew 5, 17 through 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear... Not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. The problem isn't the law. I'll say that again. The problem isn't the law, but rather the problem is when you define your identity and relationship to God based on ideological or behavioral purity. Simply put, I believe the right things and I do the right things, therefore God loves me. I think the right things, I say the right things, and I try to do most of the good things and avoid the bad things, therefore God accepts me again. That is the problem. 
defining your identity based on your adherence to a specific set of standards. That's not a Christian problem. That is a human problem. You find that inside the church and outside the church, right? Outside of the church, you have different ideologies, different agendas. Basically, you have to just toe the party line. You have to say these things. You don't say these things. If you say this, you get in trouble. If you don't say this, you're good. Or if you don't say this when you're supposed to say that, right? It's just this standard, and it's this goalpost that's always changing. These people are people we care about. These people are, nope, these people, you know, and you're just like, you're trying to toe the line. Like, where am I supposed to? How can I, how can I be accepted? How can I be part of the in-group? That happens outside the church, but the reality is it also happens inside the church. You think as long as I believe the right things, I don't have any doubts. I never doubt. I'll be saved. I'm good. Or perhaps more perniciously, but I find more commonly, it looks like this. If I can just stop doing insert behavior, insert sin, then God will love me again. Hear that all the time, over and over again. If I just stop this, if I could just stop this, then God could love me again. I can feel that God loves me again. When you give your allegiance to any such system in exchange for salvation, the system demands absolute obedience, no compromise, no doubt, no disobedience. Whatever system, whether that's just legalism or something outside of the church or something in between, in any case, Paul would say, Jew or Gentile, in our case, Christian, non-Christian, you are under the curse. You are cursed because cursed is everybody who does not obey everything that the law says. And whether that system, again, is legalistic, it's a legalistic warped version of Christianity, or it's some secular ideology, if you give your allegiance to that, you're believing and trying to identify with your adherence to those rules, whatever they might be, the result is the same. No one can truly live up to the standard that that's set. I can't live up to that standard. And if you can't live up to that standard, then you're consigned to a life of shame and frustration. The grind will kill you. This is the second corrective. The process is shaping you. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. We've already established that all people, Jew and Gentile, our day, Christian, non-Christian, no matter what, live under the curse pronounced in Deuteronomy 27. And the tragedy in the history of Israel that we have recorded in the Old Testament is that they repeatedly tried to undo this curse by trusting in this king, this leader, this sometimes pagan God, thinking that, like, we're under the curse, so if we kind of worship this God in addition to, to the real God, that should figure it out. Over and over, you see every just di all these different attempts to try to undo this curse, to unlock that blessing, and they fail. Every single one of them fails inevitably. In verse 12, Paul references a promise from the law found in Leviticus 18.5 where God says, Keep my decrees and laws for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. That's a positive command that God gives his people saying, Hey, if you do these things, you will live. You will experience my blessing. And despite breaking the law, immediately the people of Israel, they're trying to, like, How can we get this blessing? How can we prove ourselves to God? How can we earn his favor? Again, if you recall the context of this letter, there were these Gentile Christians. They were saved from a pagan background, all these crazy backgrounds where they didn't believe in God, likely didn't even believe in one God. They're radically saved by Jesus. 
and they're living, they're growing. Paul is teaching them, but eventually Paul has to go on in his missionary journey, and right away, these legalistic false teachers infiltrate the church. They're starting to spread. It's like, hey, hey, you like, I know that you're like a Christian, but you're not like all, you're like an intern Christian. You want to get promoted? This is what you need to do. You need to do these other things that this is what we as the Jewish Christians do. This is what we have to do. You have to do the same things. Otherwise, God's not really going to accept you. You're not really fully a Christian, right? You got to, you know, get the, you know, snippy snip, you know? No, no, more, no more bacon. No more blackened shrimp from Slapfish. Nothing. So you got to say no to all of it. That's what these teachers were saying. So Paul, when he's writing this letter, it's just these Gentile Christians are now in danger of slipping away from the gospel and into this works righteousness system. And that's why he is so harsh in his tone. And I think that like these Galatian believers, I think we have a choice set before us. Paul is very clear. Basically, you either believe the real gospel or you don't believe the real gospel. And if you don't believe the real gospel, you're accursed. We have a choice that's set before us because Paul contrasts two things. In verse 10, he mentions this, that those who rely on the law and the Greek is a little bit more, it's a little bit more explicit. The, the NIV is great, but the Greek is, it literally says, of works of the law. People who are of works of the law. That you identify with works of the law. That is your badge into entrance into God's kingdom is of works of the law. Paul contrasts that in verse 10 with what he says earlier in verse 9 and later in 11 of faith. So we have a choice. So we, are we of works of the law or of faith? And the process by which we choose to conduct our Christian walk shapes us in every way imaginable. The process that we choose to live shapes us. It's not just that we're making choices. When we make certain choices over and over again, it shapes how we think about things. It shapes how we approach life. And most of you probably don't know this. I didn't until about two years ago. But I, after some research, my wife and I kind of realized, like, oh, I'm probably somewhere on the autism spectrum. Didn't know that. Some of you were just like, oh, that explains a lot. Um, <laughs> but no, didn't know it. Don't have a diagnosis in my hand, but after a lot of preliminary assessments and some fair amount of research, it's like, yeah, it seems definitely to be the case. Definitely explains a lot of my own personal story to some of the kind of weirdness that especially I dealt with in high school, not really fitting in, not knowing how to, how to be with other people. Um, but nonetheless, if, if you're familiar at all with autism spectrum disorder, there's a concept known as masking, and all people mask to some extent, but people who are autistic tend to do it more. It's this idea of, hey, I want to fit in. I don't necessarily know how to, so I'm going to try to like copy and imitate behaviors that I see so that I kind of can fly under the radar. The way I would describe it is that I work sometimes extra hard to appear normal when sometimes deep down I might feel very abnormal. How can I work to just fit in? And over time, what I found in my life in listening to the voices of other people who are autistic, who face similar challenges, I find that when I try so hard to fit in, when I try so hard to live up to other people's expectations of what I should be, over time, I'm working so hard that I lose, act I actually lose touch with who I am as a person. I'm trying so hard to almost be this facade that deep down, I'm not even sure who I am anymore because I'm so busy working so hard to be what other people want. Well, the reason I say that is because for me, a lifetime spent trying to fit in in different environments has shaped my personality to the point that now, at 29, almost 30 years old, I struggle with tendencies to be kind of people-pleasing at times. Sometimes I struggle with being a workaholic because like, I just want so badly to do the right thing, to, to receive that affirmation. 
that I'll do those things. I've picked up those habits. I've been shaped by the process of the choices that I made over my life, even to the point that I don't always realize when I'm doing it. And for us, if you are of works of the law, as Paul says, then you are either intentionally or unintentionally drawing your identity and relationship with God based on your own attempts to be obedient and faithful. You are basing your identity not on what Jesus has done for you, but on your ability to obey God's law. On even, you know, you might just like, I'm not even reading the Old Testament. I'm just trying to, you know, love my neighbor. But you're defining your identity based on your ability to love your neighbor or not love your neighbor. Whether you realize or not, that is still being of works of the law. And again, Paul would say that approach is ineffective. Verse 11, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. No matter how you live as those of works of the law, those who rely upon works of the law, the result is the same. Your life is under the curse. It leads to frustration when you know that the standard is so high and you're not sure you can make it. Then it leads to shame when you definitely didn't make it. And then eventually you, you push that too far. It goes to burnout. I'm, I'm done with this. I'm done with this. I can't do this. That is the cycle of shame. And again, goat theology daddy N.T. Wright says that this is one of the most difficult passages in Scripture to understand, so let's just try to boil it down. Will we choose to identify our relationship with God and others based on our attempted adherence to some perfect standard? That is what it means to be of works of the law. Or are we going to base our identity upon our allegiance to Messiah Jesus, who did already perfectly obey the law, and who's graciously said, let my obedience cover your disobedience. That is what it means to be of faith. Maybe you, maybe you're new to Christianity or just you're still kind of exploring. Just like this seems weird. Like why are we even going, why are you going so in depth over just the difference of a couple words? Isn't arguing about of the law and of faith isn't just, just semantics. And this is what I would say. This is my take on that. If we identify as those who are of the law, again, intentionally or unintentionally, I believe that one of two outcomes is likely to occur. One is deconstruction. The other is legalism. The other is legalism. Though I find I've seen it in my life, and I've seen it in the lives of way too many others. Those, that's kind of the two options you got. If you really long-term pick, I'm going to live on team performance, team self-righteousness, that's really where it lands you. And deconstruction often occurs when self-identifying Christians struggle to be something they're not. Again, they are trying to fit in, perhaps to a community. They're being told, this is the standard. This is the bar of entry. They're being reminded by Christians, you're not, you're not getting there. You're not high enough on, you need to keep working. And then they're hurt when they see those same Christians not living up to those standards. So there's hypocrisy. They're hurt by that. Or perhaps they're being fed doctrines and, and Bible teaching that's just not, it's shallow it's not really satisfying at an intellectual level. It doesn't answer the questions and doubts that are part of a healthy faith. It's this mindset of, I experience shame as a result of not living up to the standard of behavior that those same Christians also didn't live up to. Therefore, the system is broken. Let's discard it. That is what deconstruction often looks like. But legalism is no better. That is not a better route. Because that often occurs when self-identifying Christians believe that their own semi-successful attempts to obey God set them above those who are less successful. 
This is the mindset of the person who says, I'm not like you. I was one day, but I'm not, not anymore. You're struggling with those things. You're wrestling with those things, but I figured it out. I've obeyed God. I've put in my time, so I've been able to climb up the religious ladder a little bit so that I'm not dealing with what you're dealing with. For that person, they're saying the system of religion, it works. I put in my time. I got my reward. I'm better than you are. And again, you ask, you ask that person, they're not going to say that, but that's fundamentally where legalism leads. That's why Jesus is so upset with the Pharisees in the Gospels. And over time, the process of trying to hold ourselves to this unforgiving standard shapes us to be people of internal shame. We know we can't make it in the law. We know we can't obey perfectly. So we feel shame. We feel condemnation. We feel broken. But externally, we demonstrate superiority. We'll mask our own insecurity, our own inferiority, and I will project my feelings onto you. So whether you fail, I'm going to judge you for it because I'm better than you. I have this figured out. That's where legalism leads. And the process of living by the law shapes us to be people of the law. Again, Paul uses strong language. People of the law are under a curse. You're under a curse if you do not perfectly obey everything that is in the law, and nobody can. Instead, the process of grace should shape us to be people of grace. Because when we are people living by faith, we're freed from the need to be performatively self-righteous. I don't have to perform for God. He knows me. He knew what he was getting when he died for me. I don't have to perform for God. Yes, I want to honor him. Yes, I want to live righteously, but his love for me is constant whether I love him or not. That's the definition of the biblical love he shows us. Whether I show it back to him or not, he loves me. And he loves me just as much on my best day as he does my worst day. That is what it means to be of faith. And when we live as people of grace, it frees us to then show other people grace when they are weak. Because we know that, hey, I remember when I, I've been weak and Jesus has shown me grace. So I, because I'm not trying to earn anything, I'm not currying favor with God, I can show you grace too. I can show you grace too. The grind will kill you. The process is definitely shaping you. And finally, the blessing is for you. Let's read the last couple of verses, 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who, hung, who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Um, I, I was thinking about this this week and I was reminded of a really cool story that happened in my connect group. So about seven, eight months ago, our dryer went out, which you know me, my wife and I, we have three children um, and three children produce a lot of laundry. Five humans total, that's a lot of laundry. My wife is a saint for doing it. Laundry is very hard when you don't have the dryer, um, and so it's just very tough. Um, busy season of work and school. Um, I'm in seminary, so it's like I just didn't have time to fix it, and it was getting tough. And I remember in our connect group, we were asking prayer requests, and I was like, honestly, like tomorrow, I'm gonna try to pull off the back of the dryer and figure out what's going on. I am not handy, if you know me. Um, I was like, but I'm gonna try it. And we got to fix the dryer. And, and one of the guys in my connect group says, oh, I, I know a guy. I think he might have something that could help you. I was like, oh, cool. Didn't think much of it, and then, then I came home the next day to find that there was a, a dryer, basically brand new, just sitting in my driveway, and I call him, and I'm just like, what's going on? And he's like, oh, the guy who had this just wanted to give it to you. I know a friend at my work, and he had a spare dryer. 
It's like, okay, but like, what? You okay, that, I'm so grateful. Like, when can I get this back to him? Like, uh, we'll just borrow it. I really just need it for a couple of days until I get the drive. He's like, no, it's yours. I'm like, no, and is this for me? No, he's like, it's yours. Just take it, keep it. The guy wanted you to have it. Um, your life has been shaped by the cycle of performance and shame. We read words this, like this, that Jesus became a curse for us so that we could have the blessing of Abraham. We read that and it's like, nah, this doesn't sound right. I'm, I'm not worthy. I'm not, I'm not able. I'm not wanted. I can't experience that. And that's what these Galatian Christians were. That's what they believed. That's why Paul writes this letter. They didn't feel that God would continue to honor their faith until they took on all these different external badges. It's just like, even though they were already in, they thought, oh gosh, now I, I guess I need to get to the VIP room. So well, where's a badge? I, like, that's what they're trying to do, putting all these badges and trying to dress themselves up so that they can get to the next level in their relationship with God. And tragically, American Christianity has often portrayed the gospel in the same way, that it's basically, hey, grace gets you in the door. You don't have to do anything. Jesus loves you. Come on in. But okay, now that you're in, mm, okay really got to behave. You really got to stay on your best behavior or you never know. God probably, you know, we're going to have to kick you out. That's how we presented the gospel. Again, not intentionally. That's just how we've communicated it over time culturally that, hey, yeah, grace, absolutely. But now it's law. Now it's obedience. And if you don't obey, God doesn't love you anymore. Despite the fact that we told you that God loves you forever. God loves you no matter what. Well, not quite. That's how often, sadly, tragically, I think American Christianity has portrayed the gospel. And to both the Gentile Galatian believer 2,000 years ago, to us today, to those who are quietly believing that maybe somehow you're unworthy and you're unwanted at God's table, Paul answers that and responds by presenting the scandal of a crucified and cursed Messiah. The story of, of every religious person since the time of Israel at least who believes in the God of the Bible, has been an attempt to reverse the curse ourselves, right? We know we're under a curse. I know I can't do it. I know I'm not righteous enough. So what can I do to undo all of this? What can I do to reverse this curse that I have? And then we fail at every turn. And we think, okay, well, maybe if there's somebody that I can follow who has it together because they've done it right, Maybe I can just try to do what they do, and, and I can do it right, too. But we, we, we never works out. The scandal, it was scandalous to the Jewish mind 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote it. It was scandal, it's scandalous to us now. It is no less scandalous that we are entirely unable to undo the curse. So Paul's saying, we can't undo it. You're under that curse, and you stay cursed unless you obey everything that is in the law. And we all know, well, collectively, yeah, no, none of us are going to make that, so I guess we're cursed. We can't undo the curse. It is hopeless. But God shows up one day. God shows up in human history. And go figure. He perfectly obeys his law. He perfectly obeys it to the letter. But then he dies in a way that the law says is cursed. That he was hung on a tree. He was hung on a cross. That's a curse. And that Jesus, God himself, stepped into the curse that we brought on ourselves. The curse that we rightfully earn for ourselves. We can't earn salvation, but we have rightfully earned the curse we're under. And yet Jesus steps into that curse. He steps into that curse. He absorbs that curse. The curse that we were trying so hard to undo, Jesus says, no, I'll, I'll be the curse. I'll take the curse on for me. And then you get to have my blessing. You get to come sit at the table because I became the curse so that despite your disobedience, you're no longer under. 
That's scandalous. That's scandalous that God would allow himself to become a curse when he did nothing wrong. That was a scandal 2,000 years ago. And it's a scandal today. And then to top it off, though, this crucified, this cursed Messiah looks at each of us and he invites us. He invites us to sit at the table. That same crucified and cursed and resurrected Messiah, who we murdered, by the way, says, yes, I have a seat for you. You want to be part of Abraham's family of faith? Yeah, come on, it's for you. Todd Wilson helpfully summarizes a very difficult passage. I'm sure we can all agree. I love this. And he says this. This is, in a nutshell, what Paul says in this passage. The law's curse blocks God's blessing, but Christ's death has removed the law's curse so that now in Christ Jesus, God's blessing can once again freely flow to the world. Israel's curse prevented the blessing that God wanted to show to the whole world. He couldn't show it. But through Jesus, because through Jesus, as being the perfect, obedient son of Abraham, obeyed the law perfectly, and then he took on the curse that we all have, and now God's blessing can flow to everybody. And that's why, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you can be part of Abraham's family by faith, not by the law, not by ethnicity, by faith. The seat at the Father's table, adoption into Abraham's family whether you feel wanted or worthy at that table or not, it's for you. It's for you. And only when we cease this never-ending cycle of trying to always obey. I know that I got in the door with grace, but I just need to hold it together. I need to hold it together so that God doesn't hate me now. If he didn't hate you then, why would he hate you now? Give up that cycle of just per- perpetual, continual, self-righteous religiosity. Give up that notion that you have to earn back God's favor when he already gave you all of it. You already have the blessing of Abraham. You already have that grace. Give it up. Because once you finally come to that place, just like, I get it. I can't do it. And even now, even as a Christian, maybe you've been walking with God for 10, 20 years. You still can't do it. But you don't have to because Jesus already did it for you. That is good news that Jesus gave us the blessing that we do not deserve. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the difficult parts of Scripture. Thank you for the parts of Scripture that are not always easy to understand, but require us to dig in, because we know that you have something for us, God. So I pray that we would be people not of the law, not who identify with obedience and trying to be perfect, but we would identify by faith, we would identify with your son who loved us and gave himself for us, God. Help us to be people of faith as we walk out into our week this week. In Jesus' name, amen.